You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Keep having these vivid dreams, like thinking weird things. What sorts of things? We're going to be a hit factory, like Motown, but for computer games. You heard it here first. Bandersnatch. It's an adventure game based on book. Jerome F. Davies was a genius. See that bloke who went cuckoo and cut his wife's head off? When it's a concert piece, a bit of madness is what you need. and welcome once again to GeekFest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we are going in three different directions. First up, we are going to talk about the Luke Skywalker prop lightsaber controversy. Well, believe it or not, there is such a thing as a market for props uh, having to do with films such as Star Wars. And believe it or not, sometimes the authenticity of such props comes under question. And this is a story we're going to highlight that I was following a few months ago of how all of a sudden this amazing sounding prop uh, showed up in the market, went up for auction, and all the twists and turns that all of a sudden popped up having to do with this particular prop, uh, it's a type of thing that you never even expect could happen within the Star Wars community, if you will. Uh, But just like anything else, you always have to prepare yourself for a surprise. So we'll start off with the prop lightsaber controversy, and then we'll jump over to a documentary called Three Identical Strangers. This is a documentary that completely blew me away in terms of how... When you think you know everything, things could change so fast and so deep, and it could affect so many people. You just have to watch this documentary to believe what happened. Then we jump over to Bandersnatch, Netflix's Black Mirror standalone film, more or less, that uh, uh, was released, uh, again, very recently, as an individual outing at the Black Mirror universe, this is a game-changing episode that 
does something so original that works on so many different levels that it deserved its own place by being highlighted in our show. It's something different. And, you know, I love it when somebody surprises me. When I see a movie or a television show and they do something that's never been done before, something that, honestly, you never expected, it's wonderful. And this is definitely one of them. So let's begin our conversation about the Luke Skywalker prop lightsaber controversy. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special news bulletin direct via satellite from our on-the-spot task force. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Thank you, Bob. It's Mort. Mort, yes. I am Ted Baxter, and here is the news. I want to go over a story that I ran into through one of the many Facebook groups that I belong to and the different uh, Facebook friends that I've made, specifically having to do with Star Wars. There's a whole area of collecting that I am not part of when it comes to Star Wars, and that is prop collecting. Prop collecting has been going on for quite a bit. There are a couple of big names, you know, in the field of prop collecting. The, The biggest one that I can think of is Gus Lopez. He's a huge Star Wars collector who is usually tracking down actual props and items that were used in the film or manufactured for the production, you know, of Star Wars. He has an unbelievable collection. He's put out a number of books. He hosts panels on Star Wars celebrations, you know, about collecting, international collecting, food item collecting, you know, you name it. You know, if you think of, you know, some of the top names of collecting Star Wars merchandise, not necessarily only toys, but just stuff in general, you know, you have your Steve Sansweets and you have your Gus Lopez, basically. Those guys are huge. Granted, one of them is, you know, has his own museum, <laughs> his own nonprofit, and the other one is more of a private collector that does a lot of public, you know, appearances and promotes his, you know, his uh, his wares. So, if you look into the the world of prop collecting, one of the biggest drawbacks for it to be an accessible collection to get into is basically and bottom line, the price. You are here dealing most likely with items that are very, very expensive. Now, granted, you could have some connections to the film or to certain companies that might have used equipment and gotten rid of it or are in the process of getting rid of it and that sort of thing, and you might luck out and be able to acquire something at a bargain or maybe at a dumpster. You know, sometimes, especially in the olden days, they used to get rid of a lot of stuff. They didn't used to keep it you know, and then uh, sell it or, or, or somehow, uh, you know, trade it later for, for fans or collectors or whatever. But there have been so many stories in the past of people going through, you know, dumpsters and garbage bins and finding, you know, furniture and walls and, and you know, built set pieces, you know, from, from older movies that then later on become, you know, these very iconic pieces of somebody's collection that it's like wow that's amazing you know the stuff that they were able to find now granted as 
people have gotten more savvy and how the market has developed, you know, through the years for these kind of items to actually become a valuable asset that people are willing to pay serious, serious bucks. More modern shows, if you will, they've gotten into the habit, you know, especially some of these studios, you know, they just cannot hold these items forever. There's hundreds, possibly thousands of shows and movies that are made and you just cannot keep everything. So many times if a show is somewhat popular or, or, or a movie is somewhat popular, you know, yes, some of the production people, they keep, you know, the directors, the producers, they keep some of the stuff as mementos of, of their production and stuff like that. Uh, some of the, the construction places, the special effects places, they keep some of their, their stuff too. But a lot of times, you know, they end up warehousing these things. I guess sometimes in the hopes that maybe they'll do a future revival of a certain television series or whatever. But it comes to a point where, you know, I guess they just basically need the space to store newer stuff. So eventually this stuff gets discarded in a way where they are able to auction it off. And there are a number of auction houses, you know, professional high profile auction houses, not the type of stuff that you will see a, a famous classical paintings or sculptures, you know, from the art world, but specifically having to do with film and television. There's one specific company, auction house really, called Profiles in History. There's a number of them, but this is one of those big known ones. And every now and then what they do is, I don't know how many times a year, but they'll have an auction. And it usually has possibly uh, a couple of hundred items maybe, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. And it's in sections. So in other words, you'll have, a, uh, let's say, 10, 15 items from one movie. You know, 10, 15 items from a television show, you know, clothing, articles of clothing, jewelry, whatever, props, chairs, like any kind of accessory having to do with the show, weapons, uh, display, you know, you name it. All that stuff that gets put away somewhere, uh, scripts, again, uh, call sheets, you name it, anything having to do with the production that was, for whatever reason, saved and it's not sitting in somebody's home, that kind of stuff makes it into some of these auctions when, when studios decide to unload stuff. And sometimes it is just incredible. Looking at these catalogs sometimes, it's almost like a, like a making of book of what took place. You know, you I, I buy a lot of these, you know, Star Wars making of Star Wars books and reference books from not Star Wars and other things too. And the amount of props and costumes and stuff like that that you see on these books, when you look at these catalogs, they're just as impressive in terms of how much stuff they have. And because... The purpose of these catalogs is to entice, basically, somebody into buying it. They do take very careful pictures, a lot of times, of some of their high-end items, you know, very detailed pictures. So, not only do you get, like I said, a studio all of a sudden, you know, unloading a ton of stuff, but sometimes you get private collectors uh, who have purchased something in the past and now they're reselling it. Uh, the collecting world is just like the art collecting world. You have people that all of a sudden uncover something new and they are selling it, you know, a lot of stuff. Or you have people that buy things and then reinvest it because they want to make a profit a couple years later and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's just like anything else. Like I said, you know, when I talk about action figure collecting and that sort of thing and what kind of collector you are, 
I always say, you know, you have the collectors that buy it because they like it and they want to look at it. Then you have collectors that buy it and hide it. They really are not interested in looking at it or showing it to anybody else. It's a a different kind of collector. It's almost like a hoarder type of collecting. Granted, a lot of times you just don't have the room to display it. And if you had the room, you would display some of these things. But there are actual people that don't want to... They don't want to show it. They, they, it's 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 a very private thing, you know. Their collection. Sometimes people are embarrassed of whatever there is they collect. You know, especially. You know, it's not the first time I've heard you know Star Wars people that you know they're they're afraid to display their stuff because they're embarrassed. You know, of people coming to visit them and they'll be like, "Well, what's that? Oh, well, that's my Star Wars collection." Like, what? You know, that kind of thing. I'm not on that bandwagon. Obviously, I, I I mentioned this in the past. I keep my stuff separate. It's in a separate room. So once you enter that room, you know you're in Star Wars world and and sci-fi and genre world because that's where I keep most of my stuff. Then you have collectors that are they're business people. They're there to flip it. They're there to flip uh, the item. They will buy something and then sometime later they'll flip it and hopefully make a profit. So that's that's more like a businessman, I guess. You know, the, you don't really have the heart. You don't have the nostalgic attachment to the item. It, it, I mean, you might enjoy looking at it, but you are just uh, perfectly fine letting it go and replacing it with something else until the next trade or sale comes along. You know, that's that's very difficult. I, I really <laughs> couldn't do that because, you know, it, like it's kind of like I, I couldn't do that. I, I always I fall in love with my merchandise. I, I would have a very tough time uh, letting go of items. Or you have another hybrid kind of collector, and that is the collector that loves to tell you about how expensive this thing and how much it's worth, but they never sell it. So it's it's almost as if they're in love with the value of the object more than the object itself. They liked the perceived value, the monetary value, not the emotional value. The emotional value is different. So you do have lots of different type of collectors. But in this particular case, I wanted to talk about one item that came up for auction and this is back in december again i was uh scanning through some facebook groups and all of a sudden i see an article a youtube video actually posted by jason the board now jason the board from what i understand runs a a blog all about prop collecting and auctions and that sort of thing you know highlighting upcoming auctions and what kind of items are being uh, sold and what kind of reaction people have to it, if there's any controversy around certain items. Because apparently, again, you know, this is a whole other world, and it's amazing that these things exist, and, and they're so intricate. Apparently, just like in, I guess, the art world, there's a lot of controversy surrounding props, movie props and television props, and that is to the authenticity of these props. A lot of times, things claim to be from a certain year, let's say, or specific movie or specific episode of a show, and... You know, you kind of have to do your research and, and you you are trusting the particular auction house to be honest about it and for them, you know, themselves to be knowledgeable of what they're uh, putting up at auction, you know, with their name on it. So the particular item that he was looking into was a Luke Skywalker lightsaber. It was advertised as a lightsaber that was used in the making of Star Wars, A New Hope, the first film. It had appeared in the film. It was actually used, you can, you know, it's right there. It's, it was used in this scene, it was used in that scene, you know, that kind of stuff. Now, the reason that this particular item had been kind of highlighted in terms of what, what what's the issue here, what's wrong, 
Well, the item was going, I believe, for anywhere from a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. They were they were hoping to get uh, from this auction, which is not incredibly unusual because in the past apparently they've had other auctions for other lightsaber props that were more or less verified, I guess, I guess, as them being actual props. And, you know, you have to kind of trace the steps of where this came from, who had it before, who manufactured it, you know, that kind of stuff. And this particular one was a very attractive one because it came from Roger Christian. Now, Roger Christian, if you guys remember, I reviewed, I think I reviewed it or I included it in a different piece that I did. The fact that I had read kind of like, a, not an autobiography, but a, an autobiography of, of a lot of the film work of Roger Christian, who, which was the prop maker, more or less one of the lead prop makers. Not the guy in charge in the first film, but by the time we get to the further films, he becomes more important and this and that. But he had a huge hand in creating some of the most iconic props in Star Wars, including the lightsaber and some of the rifles that the stormtroopers and other characters use and uh, communicators and stuff like that. So he was the guy, he is the guy that is credited. Not only is it his claim, but it is listed in many, many published books, you know, acknowledged that he is the guy that went to the prop house to look for pieces of stuff to be able to come up with a laser sword for the movie. And what he ended up doing was going through a box of Graflex cylinders, you know, from Graflex cameras, the device that usually attaches in the past, in the, in the olden days of, of photography, the device that attaches to the side of the camera and then the flash gets attached to the top. And then you would hold your camera with that big cylinder thing on the side with the flash and that's how you would take your flash for photographs that graflex that's the brand device is what connects your camera to your flash well he had a whole bunch of those that he had and he had some little bits of plastic and other pieces of electronics and he cobbled together the look of the lightsaber and that being i believe luke's lightsaber was the, the first one he kind of put together because that's the most prominent one in a new hope other than of course you know obi-wan and darth vader so i would still recommend reading his book called cinema alchemist and which gives you a, a lot of information of how a lot of things he contributed to he won an academy award for his work so you know he's he's a pretty accomplished individual and lately his name ha had popped up again because uh he directed a, a a short film back in the early 80s to be to accompany uh the empire strikes back and and i think the british release is called black angel and and all of a sudden that film was kind of rediscovered again so it was i don't know if they were remastered it but anyway it's available on youtube and he's still wants to try to make a feature out of that film and so he's you know, he's, he's an older gentleman, and, he, and I, I guess he still is a, a productive individual who wants to continue doing work. And, and, you know, he's trying to kind of generate some publicity around, you know, all the stuff that he's done in the past to maybe, I guess, get him some possible work in the future. So, again, you know, I 100% recommend reading his book. So, this particular auction, again, the, the source of this particular item is Roger Christian. And, and the story goes, that the way that they advertise it, is that Roger kept one of the original uh, lightsabers that were used, that he constructed himself. And uh, this particular one that he still had, that was used in the film, is the one that he was going to, you know, put up for auction to, like, to, to get him some money. Understanding that, you know, there, there were a couple that were produced, you know, some, you know, for I, I forget exactly who got what, but like, I think Gary Kurtz might have gotten one, and maybe Lucas has one, you know, some, some people have 
other versions of this. And theoretically, all of these have been used at different times in the film. You know, when they, when they do these films, they construct different versions of it. And especially with Star Wars A New Hope, the first one was very important because as, if you remember, the first one, they had not figured out yet exactly how to do the effect of the actual glowing laser of the lightsaber. And the original idea that they were going to use was that they were going to have a hilt, which is exactly this, this hilt that Roger Christian built. And inside the hilt, there would be a connection through a wire that would come out out of the other end of the hilt. And the, the wire would have a little motor inside of the hilt that would rotate a rod, a rod that would be covered in a light reflective kind of fluorescent texture. And as you rotate that rod, the lights from the studio, the lights that are lighting the set and the, and the actors would reflect in this rod and cause a glowing effect. And that's how they would do any effect having to do with the lightsaber popping open, popping closed and fighting, that sort of thing. That was the theory. The theory didn't work. The theory ended up uh, falling apart because uh, it just could not create enough light. And it was weak, from what I understand. And the lighting of it was very difficult. So what they ended up doing instead was they completely stopped using, especially for by the time you get to Empire Strikes Back, they said, all right, enough of this rotating rod. Let's just put a normal rod and we'll rotoscope, you know, animation style, the glowing effect. In the same manner that you do a laser shot, animate a laser shot, hand-drawn animated laser shots, back then this is, we will do the same thing with the lightsaber. We will draw the lightsaber on top of the rod, and that's how we'll do it. That is why in Star Wars New Hope, there are certain scenes where you can still kind of see, by accident of course, up the sleeve of Obi-Wan, or maybe even Luke, you might be able to see it, a wire that connects to the lightsaber that they're holding. Because uh, there's a battery pack <laughs> somewhere down their sleeve causing the rod to rotate. Obviously, you, know, you no longer see the rotational rod because it is covered by that rotoscoped, animated, glowing feature of the lightsaber. And this way, they were, believe me, it worked much better. The lightsabers had more distinguished colors. You, you, were, you had your nice bright red and your nice bright blue and that sort of thing. But you still, you know, even though the film has been remastered and redone and re-this and re-that, there's a couple of shots in Star Wars where, you know, especially if the lightsaber is pointing straight at the camera, you can actually see the plain rod is in there. And uh, like I said earlier, you can still see the wire going into the sleeve of the actor. By the time we get to Empire, no more wires. They're just holding, you know, the prop hilt with a rod for reference. And that's how they're fighting. That's how they're doing it. But this original one, like I said, many were made because you, you need many when you have a production. And it's really hard to narrow down how many exactly fully finished ones were made. How many of those finished ones were actually touched and used. Uh, how many of those ended up going to whom, you know, producer gets one, uh, the director maybe gets, you know, different places, ILM gets one, you know. So the problems started coming up because this gentleman, Jason DeBoard, started looking at the pictures of what Roger Christian was showing as this is the one that I'm auctioning off and this is the one that I used in the film. And when he started to compare some of the pictures of earlier things that have been posted as them being the original lightsaber, discrepancy started coming up. 
So he researched so much and, and you have to go through these videos. There's a total of five YouTube videos that he chronicles like one step at a time because this happened over a period of like two weeks, I think. Little by little, more information kept coming up and more research kept coming up and more interviews started surfacing that Roger Christian had been giving and showing people. And the things that he was saying were a little iffy uh, in terms of there's information that says, well, originally only three were produced. And then later on, you know, over the last, like, let's say two, three years, he started saying, well, I actually produced five. And, and there's some interviews saying that, well, yeah, I have a lot of leftover parts. And I was thinking of maybe putting some of these together and, and I don't know, selling them all for something. And that seemed like a great idea as far as I'm concerned. The problem is that the contradictory information between the pictures and the, you know, I'm talking about super detailed pictures. I'm talking about little nicks and scratches that don't coincide with the pictures that are being shown as what is being auctioned and what is being shown as a reference material. A lot of these things didn't coincide. So more questions kept coming up and kept coming up and more interviews kept coming up. And after going back and forth, like I said, five total, the total of five videos, even Mark Hamill had to chime in at one point about how many lightsabers were really there. At a certain point, even Roger Christian starts chiming in, you know, through social media about trying to explain himself on exactly what it is that he's trying to sell. You know, he all the way to the end sticks to the to his story that these are the original there's no shenanigans going on here but the overwhelming evidence that i've seen you know from my perspective again i'm not an expert at any of this i'm just another another fanboy just like most of you are i'm not an expert in prop collecting i'm going off based on this information of this other person that is somewhat of an expert as far as i'm concerned it's nothing new this type of stuff apparently has happened in the past where a prop store sells something and then the controversy comes up whether the item is sold or not sold as to the authenticity of that item well like i said after about four or five videos worth of data and research the prop company finally pulled the plug and said you know what we're not going to auction this item until we can figure out a little more information about its background more or less so the auction still happened but not with that item so other items were auctioned and this story kind of quietly faded away and it's funny because unfortunately like i said the the evidence that i've looked at based on these videos and reading the blog and all the comments that people made and the contributors that have added more information it is just i found it amazing the the, the research that it took to to kind of put this together it's a bit of a bittersweet story because on the one hand, I, I really respect this individual. He's a Star Wars guy. He played a hand in such important building of things. And at this point, I would even say that, you know, if this hadn't happened, for example, and today he were to say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm Roger Christian and I'm, uh, I have all these uh, leftover pieces from lightsabers. I'm going to try to gather some more. I'm going to manufacture these. I'm going to make them myself by hand. I'm going to use original pieces as much as possible, you know, from, from this, I guess, the 70s and the 60s, wherever these things are, even the 50s. I don't even know how old these Graflex things are. They're very, they're very old. It, obviously, they don't make them anymore, but there's plenty of blogs and Facebook groups of people that are constantly searching for these pieces. So if he were to say, I'm going to take these things and I'm going to sell them for, I don't know, 
$1,000 a piece or $5,000 a piece or even $10,000. I don't know, whatever price he would imagine is a good price or he could figure out. I would be like, that is fantastic. I would, you know, if I had the money, I would love to own something like that. You know, granted, you know, it's not an actual screen use piece, but the fact that the guy who invented it handmade this thing, put it together and used the pieces that are hopefully as, as authentic as possible from the time being, I would have no problem with that. I would love that to do. But instead, the implication here, and again, the the conclusions that we come to, you know, this isn't a court of law. We don't have, you know, proof of, of, of a lot of this stuff. Nobody has admitted wrong. But the conclusion that I come to is that this guy, he was looking to make a little more money a little fast. And instead of going the route of manufacturing individual ones and selling them, he wanted to just put out one and pretend it was real. You know, I could be wrong. I don't know. But that's the that's the feeling I get from reading these stories. As of now, nothing new has happened as far as I can tell in terms of no new information defending him or, or, his, or this item hasn't gone up for auction again as far as I can tell. But it kind of gives you, if you're interested, you know, again, you got to put in the time to watch these videos. There's, like I said, there's a total of five. The, fi- the fifth one is like the, the epilogue to this whole thing that, that kind of tells you that the fact that the auction is happening in like a day or two and they pull that item. So it's the end of the story. I would recommend going in and, and researching and, and, and watch these videos in order as you see how the progression. And then you can even read the comments because the, the, the writer of the blog details all the different communications he's been getting from other people and the detail and the home. Oh, my God, this is getting this is like every video is getting a little more serious about how the discrepancies are a little more noticeable. And if he makes a mistake, he goes back on the following video and, and corrects those mistakes. So it's, it's really well researched. The the name of the blog that he runs, it's called the Original Prop Blog. So it's OriginalPropBlog.com. And you can search, you know, through all of his archives of the, mo- of the newest stuff and the oldest stuff. And, and a lot of these are attached to a video that you could watch that is hosted by YouTube. So, again, it is a great piece of almost like archaeology, investigative reporting. Uh, it's amazing, you know, the, the, the amount of work that goes into finding out and, and the knowledge of having to figure out, like, the data that's out there. There's so many links in here of people that are experts at this and they come up with these uh computer files of pictures of details that are just astronomical in detail how many you know the size the pictures the type of pieces used all the different pictures how many scenes they appeared which well this one is from this scene and this one is from that scene and this one is it's it is just incredible uh, the amount of work so again this is an area like i said before that i'm not very involved in because of the astronomical price the price is usually what keeps everybody away from this but it does exist and it's something to be careful with because if you ever are you know in a situation where you have the means of buying this kind of stuff and you have to be careful i mean this is again this falls under the art scene i guess you know people get ripped off a lot of times because of uh forgeries and that sort of thing, paintings or whatever, archaeological, historical things. But this kind of stuff apparently could happen too in TV and and movie collecting. There are links in there that you could find about questionable items. There was a whole thing I was reading about Star Trek phasers 
from the uh, original series. Somebody was selling one, claiming to be from a certain episode that Spock had, and there was questions about the look of it. It looked a little different here, looked a little different there. So, yeah, it's there's some things you have to be careful with, and you don't know. I mean, you don't know if if if, if the the person examining it is making a mistake. Or it is completely a legitimate item and, you know, you could feel safe buying or bidding on some of these things. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, you're talking about possibly hundreds of items. So you pull an item, especially a, a featured item, and it is it is kind of a big deal that you have to pull a featured item. But guess what? There's another 150 items up for sale that will sell or might not sell in the auction. So... And the other thing to keep in mind also is that it is conceivable that you could find a couple of items that are kind of low in price, maybe a hundred or two or three or a couple hundred dollars. So you could make some economical, if you will, entries into the hobby. Uh, you could start off, you know, small price-wise, but granted, it won't be as special a lot of times as a featured item that you might see and recognize very easily. It might be some background characters, you know, uh, a boot <laughs> or a pair of gloves or something. You know what I mean? It's like, it depends. But it is amazing the amount of material that is saved and then auctioned off. It, just looking at the catalogs is fun enough uh, sometimes to see that this stuff actually existed. And it's perfect, wonderful reference material. So, I strongly recommend that you guys look into this, even if you can't afford any of the stuff like myself, because the material, the research that goes into it is just amazing. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan! <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. All right, first up, I have a documentary I want to share with everyone. And granted, you could kind of say that this is not a genre entry, but little by little, it kind of turns into a genre entry, I think. I recently watched a documentary called Three Identical Strangers. Now, I had been aware that this documentary was floating around a while back, and that, uh, you know, pretty soon it was going to come to video, the home video, DVD, cable, you know, you name it. And it didn't seem to have as far as I could tell, a hook that, that I could kind of cling on to other than the, the title and, the, you know, the poster and the, and the quick short clip about it. On its face and the way that the story is laid out, it's a pretty straightforward story about triplets, more or less. Uh, these kids, there are brothers that are identical. So the story begins with one of the brothers going to college, you know, coming up to college for the first time and having an unusual reaction as he's walking through the campus, you know, to go to his room for the first time, whereby people that he'd never met before are being kind of very friendly to him and are welcoming back and, you know, how you doing and, you know, all kinds of reactions that are unusual. By the time he gets to his room... There's already his, you know, scheduled roommate there, 
And he has a just similar reaction where he's like, wait a minute, something's not right here. You look just like somebody I know, somebody who came to this school who's not here anymore. And they quickly theorize that maybe he's related to this other kid because he looks just like him. So this is where it all kind of starts in terms of the connection is made, the first connection is made between two of the brothers. They, one of them calls, uh, you know, the, the, the roommate calls the brother and says, hold on, I got to put you on the phone with somebody. And they start talking and eventually they meet up and it's like looking into a mirror. Basically, these kids are exactly the same. So it actually makes, you know, news into town and, you know, identical twins seems to have been to find themselves by accident. These were kids that were uh, adopted at some point and now they're reunited. And then all of a sudden, there's a third kid that sees the story on the paper, on his local paper. He calls them up, meets up, and guess what? There's three of them. So this is kind of like a really feel-good story about these three kids, you know, in their 20s that are meeting themselves for the first time. Now, let me give you a heads up. There is probably going to be some spoilers here. And I would say one-third or maybe one quarter, somewhere between the two, of this documentary is a very feel-good kind of news story that you would see on a news broadcast or, you know, a small piece, you know, about a feel-good story of, wow, this is, this is amazing how great this is. These kids are finally meeting each other. And it is. It, it, the, the story tracks the entire process of how, you know, one kid accidentally, you know, catches up with the other kid and then the third one sees the story and now they're together and the the press is all over them they're making the rounds uh through all this is like in the new york area mainly uh, i believe taking place and they're making the rounds in all the local news kind of places uh they appeared all three of them appeared uh, on the phil donahue show for those of you who don't remember phil donahue or don't even re realize phil donahue was kind of like oprah uh, and I don't even think Oprah is Oprah anymore. It's kind of like Ellen or or Dr. Phil or whoever happens to be the, the current daytime talk chat show, you know, out there, you know, back in the 80s, back in the early 80s. So, you know, they kind of move in together. They spend a lot of time together because of their their you know their 15 minutes of fame because everybody wants a piece of them they they you know they, they make appearances on television and they're all kind of dressed alike initially from the footage we see two of them looked very much alike even their hairstyle the third one had a different kind of hairstyle but eventually all three of them kind of try to look the part you know they try to to portray themselves in the manner that people want to see them and you know, there's a lot of uh, reenactments in the movie in terms of you have uh, real footage because there was, it was a real news event, newspaper clippings. There's interviews with family members, the different parents that these children had because they were adopted. And there's also interviews with two of the kids that are now, you know, 50-something, I guess, year old men. And... You know, they, they, they talk about how, how crazy everything was and how much fun they had. They even had, you know, because they were like the hot thing of the moment, they even had a cameo 
a, a little quickie cameo on an 80s movie called Desperately Seeking Susan. Again, mostly nobody's going to know what I'm talking about. But uh, this was a, a, a pretty forgettable movie, except for the fact that this was Madonna's first, after becoming famous for being a singer, Madonna. They had a quick little part that was, you blink and you miss it, basically. But this is how newsworthy they had become at that time. Now, what I find amazing, and, I, and it's funny because I, I asked my wife uh, the same question. She's like, I don't remember any of this. I lived in that area. I watched a lot of that those television shows, and I just cannot remember this story, you know, uh, popping up there. However, the story at that time was just that story in terms of look how cool it is that these kids find each other. Well, the documentary then starts to take a little turn. And what happens here is that, and you could kind of tell because it's kind of like, you know, the information you're being given so far is pretty straightforward information. And it's it's kind of like a, a very happy portrayal of what's happening. But you kind of can do the math that, you know, on your, on your typical hour and a half movie, documentary, whatever, there's going to be a twist. <laughs> and boy... Is this one full of twists? And again, I'll warn you again. If you haven't seen this movie, watch it. And then come listen to these twists. Because I was completely blown away. So we learned through the through the interviews that, you know, as happy as everybody was, you know, they started hanging out with each other. They started meeting each other's parents. You know, the families were completely different. The, the one thing they did have in common was the adoption agency that they used it was an agency, I, I believe, uh, for for Jewish people that wanted to adopt. So they kind of specialized in placing kids in Jewish families. So there was a certain theme, I guess, to, to, to exactly how they, they functioned. Well, the parents, as all this is happening, they're also wondering, you know, how did this happen? Because none of them uh, were under the impression that the kids had siblings when they were adopted initially. And many of them, some more than others, but but many of them, you know, they were kind of heartbroken to find out that, you know, if they would have had the chance to adopt all three, they would have done that, you know, because it's difficult, you know, to separate children, uh, no matter what age, you know, siblings, especially twins. So all of the parents started to kind of investigate, uh, you know, okay, well, this is the, the, the agency. Let's go meet up with them and figure out what happened. How did this happen? And th there was a certain pattern or, or a certain lack of a pattern in terms of the, the, the families were all very different, even though they were all under the same umbrella of that agency, you know, they, they were they were catering, you know, they were, the, the agency catered to a specific uh, population. The kids were were living in different socioeconomic uh, clusters. So, for example, one of the kids, the, the adopted parent, was a doctor. And they were a pretty, pretty well-off, wealthy kind of family. Uh, then the second kid was more of a uh, maybe a middle-class, slightly upper-middle-class kind of family. And the third kid was more of a blue-collar family, you know, a little, a little less well-off, you know, every penny counts, you know, that kind of thing. Pretty normal, if you will, you would say families, you know, mother, father, other siblings, um, 
whether natural or, or, or adopted or, you know, whatever. So they, they, they were also, you know, they, they also were growing up with other children too. So when the parents all met with this adoption agency, they, they kind of were told that, yeah, we didn't really, um, you know, we can't really talk too much about this. Uh, you know, this was a very long time ago and, you know, but we were never told you that the kids were, twins or, or brothers that, you know, there were others because, you know, a lot of times people, you know, they don't want the burden of having too many kids when they adopt. So we were kind of letting everybody, giving them the impression that there's just one child, to, you know, available for adoption and that's how it was done. So basically all they got out of this meeting was just the confirmation that they were completely clueless about there being other babies, you know, brothers, siblings, but that they were purposely not told about them. They were purposely not told about them for their reasons. So here's where their story all of a sudden starts to go down a rabbit hole. One of the parents remembers that as they were leaving the, the, the meeting with this, uh, this board, one of them forgot their umbrella. So they had to go back inside while the rest of them are all outside. And as he walks back into the room where they met, he notices that all of the board members seem to be toasting, you know, with champagne, whatever just took place. He describes it as they're celebrating something, whether it is that they just avoided, you know, getting in trouble for something or accomplishing something big as a result of this meeting or something. But it was something that really disturbed the rest of the group when they realized that they had this kind of reaction after this meeting. So, Little by little, we now learn about their lives going forward. We learn about how the brothers at one point went to try to find their, their mother, because I believe the father was had died a while back or, or was not known at the time. And the mother, the biological mother, was, was uh, you know, when they found her, they, they were able to talk to her. And they each kept kind of in touch with her more or less, but from a distance, you know, nothing too tight. But they found that she was... Um, more or less, would you consider a, a typical case of, of a single mom situation, you know, not very well off, wanting to place the children, you know, to give them a life that she couldn't give them, that kind of thing. And he even mentioned that, you know, they met at a bar and she she seemed to be able to um, handle herself pretty well as they were drinking. And he was like, wow, she can, she can really pound them down. Uh, it's one of the things they mentioned. So, you know, th th there was a, a little bit of a... Well, that's interesting kind of moment from them in terms of figuring out who their mom was. Well, as time passed, we learned more and more about how the brothers started their own business together. They opened a restaurant. They kind of are trying to ride that wave of popularity that they achieved earlier in their lives, you know, in the 80s. And now in the kind of like the mid 90s, you know, they're they're grown men and they're 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 still kind of tight, you know. They're tight because of this connection that they have. But a rift starts to occur with one of the brothers, and little by little, the you know we start to notice this this pattern where I don't want to call him the middle brother because they're all the same age, but the brother that made the second connection. In other words, not the one that went to the college, but the one that was contacted, the second one that was introduced to the group. He seemed to have. Uh, I don't know if you can call them bipolar or, or depression swings and that kind of thing. 
to the point where, you know, his family realized it, his wife realized it, but they weren't really that concerned or they weren't really that worried about it at the time. But it did cause a rift where all of a sudden now one of the brothers is no longer involved in this restaurant that they're running. And little by little, he was becoming more distant and more bipolar in his mood swings. Well, the film takes a huge tragic turn when we find out that that brother committed suicide, which devastates everybody and results in a way in being somewhat of a catalyst in having the rest of the brothers trying to find out more about, was there something connected to the way that they were brought up or the way that they were they came from or the way maybe the mother or something. So they started to investigate and they found somebody to, to, to help them investigate a writer. And little by little, you start to find information about this company. Well, one of the things that they find out, and again, this is a, a lot of information, is that there was this research study performed by a doctor. And the doctor used this adoption agency as the means to acquire his test subjects. And the agreement that they had was that, you know, in exchange for placing your child with a family, it is questionable whether the original parent, the biological parent, knew this or not. The adopted parents definitely didn't know it. The children didn't know it. But what was happening is that they were performing these psychological tests on these children to see how they would grow up, whether or not the DNA of their biological parents would affect their lives more than the families that they were being placed with. So in the case of the mother of these children, she had some, you know, mental psychological issues that she apparently might have been diagnosed with. And then the question then falls back to the children and then, and then they start to kind of examine their own lives and say, wait a minute, you know, I had some issues that my parents, you know, some of them were institutionalized or treated for psychological conditions earlier in their lives, or they might've had some instances of, of things like that, not to the extent of what happened to this other brother that commits suicide, but they kind of start to notice that, yeah, we, we did, we all did have issues like that. And it just like spirals in terms of all this information they start to learn. The original doctor is nowhere to be found. He died. The participants or the other people running him, they can't be found or don't want to participate in any kind of interviews. They find a few peripheral people who are able to kind of clue them in on these visits that they would pay the children and take their photos and have them do tests and videotape them. And the parents were under the impression that that was part of the normal adoption procedure. They were just kind of checking up on them. But then after a certain age, it stopped, you know, them be coming to their homes to check on the kids, but they were doing them from afar without anybody knowing it was happening. So a lot of things start to kind of, a lot of connections start to get made. Also around this time, they start to find out that there might've been more kids involved in this, these experiments that nobody knows about, and they don't even know about it. So little by little, other kids start to kind of make the same similar connections. And it, as a whole, this, this movie is just incredible in terms of the irony of, of how happy everybody is by discovering that all of a sudden they have siblings. And then the problems that are caused possibly by them or possibly 
anyway, whether or not they know this. It goes back to that whole issue of whether you are affected by your genes or by your environment. And the, the test seems to have been, you know, if we place these kids on three different kinds of families, you know, will they have a similar outcome? Now, the results of these tests and the notes and all that stuff has been locked. I think they sit at Yale University or something. That's where the, the, the paperwork all went to be locked until 2065 because they don't want to reveal the results of this stuff. But some of them was finally brought forward for them to read. And that's where they found a lot of this information about these tests. Granted, there's the majority of the information was redacted. You couldn't, you couldn't, they couldn't see the specifics. They only saw certain bits and pieces of information. So they're kind of still in the process of trying to figure it out, you know, exactly what the results were and, you know, how many people were affected by it. They don't even know for sure how many children were part of this experiment. So again, it's a story that you think it's like over here, but then there are so many sublevels of like, wow, this is like amazing. Now, when I saw this movie, and I believe CNN is going to air it pretty soon too, because it's I think it's part of CNN Films or something. But the first thing that came to mind is like, oh my god, this is a this is like an Academy Award nominee kind of movie. And I, I, funny, I just saw the nominations, and it is not. It, it was apparently one of the ones considered, but it didn't make it. But talk about a movie that. Just, you start in one place and you end up in a completely different environment. So, like I mentioned earlier, it's not necessarily a genre movie, but it is kind of a genre movie because it's got these twists that are just incredible. And from what I understand, uh, you know, the, the, this story has been kind of been tried to put together in a documentary fashion a number of times, uh, but this is the first time I think that they actually put it all together in one big piece that kind of makes sense. And I think I read something somewhere that they're trying to turn it into a feature film. So you probably haven't heard the last of this story. Definitely recommend seeing it. Television is not the truth. Television is an amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. All right, the second feature I want to review is an episode, a special episode, really, of Black Mirror that was recently released called Bandersnatch. Now, for those of you familiar with Black Mirror, is um, it could best be described as kind of like a Twilight Zone-ish kind of show. It's a British show. High production value, very well-known names attached, usually. Very trippy, trippy kind of concepts and endings. This particular episode has been released as a, as a standalone episode. I don't think, really, it's part of any season. This episode is completely different than anything that I've seen before, not only from Black Mirror, but from television in general. This is what you can consider to be a concept episode. The basic story here, and I'm trying not to give you spoilers on this one because there are so many potential different ways to watch this that it's just difficult to even explain. The basic concept here is that you have a, a young game designer. He lives alone at home with his dad. He's kind of a recluse. He's not very uh, sociable. And 
This is taking place, I believe, in like 1984. So the music and the styles and everything around is different. The technology that he's using, that being 1984 technology, you have to kind of picture it kind of like Atari, if you will. If you remember classic Atari 2600, that kind of Atari, that is the type of uh, software that he's kind of using and creating this game. So the thing that he's doing is he's creating a game that at the time, again, this is back in 84, would be very different. And that is what some people refer as the choose-your-own-adventure type of game. Up to this point, most video games back then consisted of, you know, you do something and you move forward and you do something and you move forward and you do something and you move forward and you die and blah, 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 whatever. But this particular game that he is putting together would go through these phases where you can select to do A or B. And then depending on what you did, it it routes you to a different location or a different part of the game. So it is a little different in terms of how that would work, you know, as opposed to regular other, you know, like a sports game or a shoot 'em up kind of game. It's a different concept at the time. What's happening here in the story, let's just talk about the story, is that he is being kind of courted in a way to present this game to a big company. And he is offered help, you know, developing the game by pairing him up with one of their lead star game makers, programmers, who is a very artsy kind of kid. And this guy's a very, you know, kind of quiet, shy kind of kid. And the the, the owner of the company, or at least the, the guy who manages the office, he's a very kind of sleazy, you know, uh, typical, you know, corporate kind of guy. So what we see is these different things that happen in the process of making this game. Now, we also learn that there is a little bit of a background to this character, and that is that his mother apparently died in a train crash. So he is living with his father. He doesn't really get along with his father too well. He's visiting a therapist weekly or routinely to kind of help him deal with all these issues that he has that stem from this accident that took place where his mother died at a train. So we get to see, you know, this is a very troubled individual. As you progress with the story, different things happened. And that's where things get really wacky. Now, they get really wacky early, early on. Because there's different things that could happen to this character based on his decisions. Just like his game. You know, there are certain decisions that are made that lead him to not join this company or release the game or not release the game or kill somebody or not kill somebody. He discovers really weird, wacky stuff. There's very psychedelic scenes of him, whether or not he's taking a certain drug at one point or not. Now, the twist of this particular episode and and, and the reason why I'm getting so muddled up trying to describe the progression of the plot is that this is a special episode that lets the viewer, the Netflix viewer, pick certain decisions that this character is making. Now, to be able to pick these decisions, you have to be watching the show on a certain device. I remember uh, I first tried watching it on my Apple TV and the Apple TV did not support the decision-making mechanism that is available for the episode. I believe you have to watch it on a computer that will let you make a decision A or B, you know, right or left. Or I later put it on through my cable box and my cable box was able to give me those abilities. Now, by abilities, I'm talking about 
This character, for example, at one point, just to kind of, I guess, to kind of warm you up to how this works, he's uh, sitting on a, on a bus and he's listening to music and he decides which tape he's going to listen to. Is it going to be tape A, you know, a certain artist, or tape B, another artist? And you pick one. And then they, that music starts to play and it becomes part of that scene. And as you move forward through this story, you are making all the decisions. The important decisions that this character is making, you get to select those decisions. So... You get to a point in this episode where you are the character. You are making those decisions. But it gets even deeper than that. Because you get to a point where the option comes up of whether or not the computer starts talking back to him, sending him messages. Because we start to learn that this particular game that he's putting together is inspired through him, by a book of a scientist or a writer that kind of went mad, a game designer, I think, that went crazy and killed uh, some people or something. So there's this kind of dark background to this book he's always carrying. Well, at one point, the computer kind of starts talking to him. And one of the options that you can select that the computer tells them who the computer is, is that you are Netflix. Netflix is talking to you. So you're like, wait a minute. So it is such a weird option that, you know, you click on, okay, let's do Netflix. And then the computer tells the character, I am Netflix. And the character's like, what is Netflix? This is really, really trippy. It's kind of like, how should I say this? It's kind of like, take Lost and all the uncertainty and all the mystery that went into those, I don't even know how many seasons Lost lasted. At this point, I don't even remember anymore. But... It's all kind of brought into one episode. Another good comparison of, of what this episode is like, if you guys ever seen the movie Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko is a movie that came out many years ago that wasn't super successful, but it kind of became a cult classic with um, Jake Gyllenhaal when he was kind of younger, obviously. And it's a movie that is so trippy because it deals with alternate realities and decisions and that kind of thing. This episode feels a lot like that. You get to a point where there are so many different possibilities and everything ends usually in a bad spot. You end up in situations where he finds out that he's being experimented on by his father and by his doctor, that they've been cataloging him for years, which is ironic because I just watched that other documentary about the the triplets who were being <laughs> experimented on. So I'm like, oh my God, this is just like that other thing I watched. There are situations where he kills a certain character or he kills himself or things like that happen, but then things get rebooted. And everything starts all over again with different decisions to be made. At one point, the episode jumps forward many, many, many years afterwards, where another developer who is very connected to another character we met earlier, starts to kind of go down that rabbit hole again in terms of trying to design a game in the same manner. There are so many possibilities, and I don't even remember how many. Uh, I will put a, some kind of link somewhere because... There are so many possibilities to explore, so many combinations of decisions that the viewer makes. And again, this works on three dimensions. It works on a story narrative dimension, then it works on a way where you're controlling the character, but then it works in a way where the character is aware of you. It is really, really trippy. I've never seen something like this done before. I really hope they don't just, you know, mimic this somewhere else because it is so innovative that I'm completely blown away by it. 
On top of this, there are so many Easter eggs of the Black Mirror universe, of many, many, many previous episodes, characters, locations, events are hidden all over this episode. So if you're a big Black Mirror fan, this is like your, your Disneyland because there is so much stuff hidden in this episode that is just utterly fantastic. It's confusing at times because you have to kind of get your bearings and understand what's happening. But like I mentioned before, the different routes that you could take, the different combinations of decisions will take you to different places. It will take you a very, very long time, I imagine, to be able to reach all these different possibilities of decisions that are made that lead to a certain place. Now, granted, from what I'm hearing, I don't think many of them or any of them really will lead you to a happy place. You got to remember that this is Black Mirror, you know, kind of like I said, it's a Twilight Zone, Outer Limits kind of a world you're dealing with. So it's just that flavor of, uh, you know, twist endings kind of thing. The amount of work that went into putting this episode is just fantastic. As usual, there is some controversy with this. Two noticeable things that happened is that the actor that plays the uh, artsy developer, he apparently had to quit Twitter because of apparently, you know, Twitter abuse, people uh, harassing him and that sort of thing. I don't know if it had to do with this particular episode or just in general, but it happened around the time where this was released. Uh, the other thing was that the Black Mirror people are being sued by the Choose Your Own Adventure people, which apparently they're, it's, a, it's a book line that's been, on, that's been on for years. And it's a little difficult to kind of dig through this whole thing, but it has to do with them being able to use that phrase choose your own adventure it's it's kind of like a copyrighted phrase having to do with those books that were put out and i don't know black mirror i don't know if they used it anyway or, or they infer to it or something like that but that's something that's also happening at the same time so it's like wow this is really uh, starting to become a controversial episode i've been watching black mirror for a while there are some just knockout episodes. I remember a while back, I, I, I talked about the Callister episode, which is the, the pseudo Star Trek episode with a, with a very dark twist attached to it. It had uh, fake Matt Damon <laughs> or evil Matt Damon. I remember when that's how they referred to that actor. But this is another one of those episodes that I was like, wow, no wonder they made it into a standalone version because you don't want to kind of hide this amongst all the other episodes. The funny thing is that I am still, I, there's still one Black Mirror episode I haven't watched and I have to dig it up to figure out which one it is because I remember I was watching it in little bits and pieces and I completely skipped one, I think. So it's it's kind of like a little, a little hidden gem that I have waiting for me on my... On my Netflix account, I'm also hearing, you know, the, the, the producers of the show were very happy with the response and, 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 and the outcome of the episode and the reaction that people had. I'm hearing that there, there is a potential for them to maybe expand on some characters or bring back some characters. They're really, really happy with some of these. And yeah, it's, it's just a, a kind of like a mind-blowing episode. And it, it's, um, like I said, uh, the two things that come to mind is Lost and Donnie Darko, because, lost because of all the intricacies and the connections that are made and the cause and effect type of things that happen. And Donnie Darko for similar reasons, but Donnie Darko has this, you know, crazy psychedelic overview of everything having to do with alternate realities, which this show, I have a feeling it has to have been some kind of inspiration.
if you have Netflix, I suggest dig this one up. And if possible, try to watch it in a controlled environment where you can actually make those decisions. Because if you don't have those decisions, if you cannot make those selections, you're only going to get a version of the story that goes from beginning to end with no real decisions for you to make. It's the decision-making process that makes this unbelievable. It's just incredible how, like I said, it's a three-way flip. A story, you are the story, and then the story looks at you. It is just so crazy. So I strongly, strongly recommend this. All right, well, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We started off with our Star Wars prop lightsaber controversy. It's hard to believe that this type of thing happens, even with something like Star Wars. And I know it's a little naive of us to believe that, you know, something so close to our heart could have the possibility of shenanigans going on when it comes to collecting and selling and authenticating certain items. But heck, it happens all the time, apparently. Then we also took a look at two individual presentations, one of them being the documentary Three Identical Strangers. You know, I'm a fan of documentaries, and when one of these comes along that takes you in such a direction that you were not expecting, and it completely flips you around so many times as to being surprised as to, wow, the effect that some of these events have on the people that are involved, it just kind of blows you away. And this is one of these documentaries that is definitely worth your time. And then we finished up with Bandersnatch, the Netflix Black Mirror Universe standalone presentation where not only is it your traditional Black Mirror, you know, creepy, weird, twist ending, twist everything kind of presentation, but they really are capable and succeed in not only giving you a really messed up story, but they mess with you, the viewer, and then the show messes with you back. It's a, it's a back and forth thing that they accomplish with this particular kind of episode that if you are capable of, of watching it in the way that it is intended to be watched, you should definitely do it. This was by far probably the best or maybe one of the two best ones. I'm still a big fan of the Callister episode, but definitely, if you have a chance, watch it. So, on behalf of everybody here, thank you for listening, and we will see you here again soon at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. I wouldn't believe the story if someone else were telling it, but it's true, every word of it. It started when I went to college. It was the first day of school. All these people are coming up to me saying, Eddie, how are you? Eddie, hi. I'm like, my name's not Eddie. I don't know what you're talking about. As soon as this guy turned around, I knew it was Eddie's double. I said, you're not going to believe this. You have a twin brother. Oh, my God. As I reached out to knock on the door, it opens. And there I am. His eyes are my eyes, my eyes are his eyes, and it's true. And then the story went from being amazing to incredible. It was an article to Twins Reunited. I think I might be the third. When people ask me what is the most remarkable story you ever encountered, I tell them it's the story of the triplets. You guys have been on the front page of every newspaper in the world. True. true. They were more like clones than they were like brothers. It was a miracle. There was nothing that could keep us apart. That's when things kind of got 
funky. Something was just not right. They separated these boys at birth. The parents had never been told that there were two other children. What was the purpose? Why? How could you not tell us? They're trying to conceal what they did from the people they did it to. When you play with humans, you do something very wrong. It would be evil enough to come up with something like this. There's a lot of powerful people that would like to have the story silenced. There's still so much that we don't know. It boggles the mind. It's a mystery. I'd like to know the truth. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2019. <laughs>is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>